This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Scholarly Communications channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I am joined by Cynthia Cross, John Wright, and Mbongaseni Butelezi, who have all worked together on editing Archives of Times Past, published in 2022 by Wits University Press. Archives of Times Past is an exploration of the archive on Southern Africa's past in the pre-colonial era bringing new ideas about source material and archiving from scholars in Southern Africa and elsewhere. It focuses on the question, how do we know or think we know what happened in the times before European colonialism? This book includes essays by by well-known historians, archaeologists, and researchers to engage these questions from a range of perspectives and in illuminating ways. Written from personal experience, they capture how these experts encountered their archives of knowledge beyond the textbook. The essays are written at a time when public discussion about the history of Southern Africa before the colonial era is taking place more openly than at any other time in the last hundred years. Cynthia Cross is an honorary research associate of the History Workshop at the University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, and an honorary research associate at the Archive and Public Culture Research Initiative at the University of Cape Town. John Wright is Emeritus Professor of History at the University of KwaZulu-Natal and a research associate in the Archive and Public Culture Research Initiative at the University of Cape Town. Mongaseni Butelezi is the executive director of the Public Affairs Research Institute. Cynthia, John, and Mongaseni, welcome to the New Books Network. I would love if we could start off with each of you sharing a little bit about yourselves, where you grew up and completed your studies, how you became interested in and connected with archives, and how all of you connected over writing this book. And Cynthia, maybe we could start with you. Hmm, thanks, Jen. Thanks for the introduction. I was actually born in Zimbabwe, but moved to Johannesburg as a child with my family. And I studied history at the University of the Witwatersrand, commonly known as WITS. 
And I was encouraged, I had never thought of this, but I was encouraged to do postgraduate studies. And that's where I really encountered the archive and discovered that history was a very exciting discipline. I ultimately completed my PhD at Wiltz and I started my working life as a history teacher and then later returned to Wiltz as a lecturer in the history department, where I taught for many years. Um, I first met, well, I always heard had heard of John because of the James Stewart Archive, which I came to use in my own teaching, and I admired it very much, and I felt his work very inspiring. But because I'm just a few years younger than John, and I like to think that I was kind of in the avant-garde of the left and so on, and I used to quite often challenge John, kind of follow him around to conferences and so on, and spring out of my chair and say, but Professor Wright. <laughs> and uh, so it's quite funny because that's the image I really have, and then um, John approached me saying he had an idea for a book and I thought, well, why on earth is he talking to me after all our arguments over the years? But, uh, of course, that was a fantastically stimulating thing about it. Mugwazini, I think I really met through John, but had also heard of him and read his work. And, um, yeah, and so I came to know him later, but really appreciate my collegial relationship with him. Thank you. Um, and John? Yeah, thanks, Jim. Um, yeah, I grew up in Natal province, as it was then, in South Africa, now Wazulu Natal. I studied history at the University of Natal in Pienemaritzburg, and then later at the University of the Witwatersrand. Both my MA thesis and my PhD thesis were in topics in the history of societies before colonialism. So I became interested in archival questions pertaining to that field early on. And I found that I enjoyed archival research and was quite good at it. I enjoyed doing the research and then putting ideas together into a narrative, both the theses that I did at MA level and the PhD level. But of course, that's fairly standard for historians to get in at, at you know, higher level, doing higher, higher degree theses, get into archival work. Um, I had no particular notion that the making of archive was an important field of study in its own right. And I didn't really start thinking about that until, in fact, after I'd retired, retired from, I should have said, um, teaching history at the University of Natal in Pietermaritzburg where I was for a long time. I retired from that. And soon after that, I was asked, invited by Professor Caroline Hamilton, who was a long-standing friend and colleague, to join the APC, we can call it, the Archive and Public Culture Research Initiative, that she was setting up at the University of Cape Town. This was, would have been about 2008, 2009, somewhere around there as to, to join the APC as a research um, associate. And very quickly in the APC, one was thrown into the deep end of, through Carolyn, not very largely her work, of archival thinking, critical archival thinking, and investigating the whole enormous range of archives that 
historians generally use, but particularly historians of, can I say, yeah, we'll call it pre-colonial Southern Africa shorthand. Although in the book, as you've probably seen, you know, we quite specifically critique that notion of the pre-colonial. Perhaps we can come on to that later on. But anyway, in participating in the workshops and writing of papers in the APC, one learned very quickly a whole range of new ideas about archive and how other people, particularly students, felt about it and the new ideas that they brought from their own wide range of positions that they occupied to that they brought it to these seminars. So yeah, that's really how I started off in the archive world. And as Cynthia said, I suppose about 2012, you know, I wanted to pick up on a book on a field that I'd long been interested in, and that was confronting stereotypes, colonial-made stereotypes, or colonial-era stereotypes, let's say, about the history of Southern Africa before colonialism which you want to become more and more aware of you know, over many years of teaching and reading. But they were still very much around in the new South Africa of the time. And you know, a couple of years later, I approached Cynthia with ideas about the book. And it grew from there. Cynthia was a long-standing colleague at the University of the Witwatersrand. I don't remember those arguments, quite honestly. I remember collaborative work. And like-minded thinking. Anyway, perhaps you can put it right on that one. And then through the APC was where we both met Amongisemi, who was you know, associated with his work in Cape Town at the time, and then ended up in the APC. And yeah, we just took our collaboration from there. Super, thank you. Mbongaseni? Thanks, Jim. Um, so I was born and grew up in northern Wazanatal, in the town of Ulundi. Um, and I went to university in Durban, at the then University of Natal. Um, I've never studied history formally, actually. Um, so I always say I, I'm, not, I'm not a historian. I pretend to be one. Um, I... So I, my interest was um, always in literary studies, and I studied literature, uh, actually. But my interest in history goes back uh, a long way, actually, to high school, I would say, where um, I became very interested in what was going on politically in the country, which took me to history, in that I was trying to understand the political violence that was taking place when I was in high school in the 90s. Um, and to understand that, I then found myself um, reading um, right back to Anglo-Zulu War, right? reading right back to the early 19th century. Um, and then later on, when I went to university and started investigating uh, praise poetry is Bongo and his Tagazelo, I came across um, John's work and came across um, the James Stewart archive which um, at first I had great difficulty engaging because um, it, was, it was fashionable at the time in the late 90s and early 2000s uh, to dismiss uh, work like the James Stewart Archive as um, 
colonial era work uh, that was produced by um, a colonial magistrate. Uh, it was very fashionable to disavow all of that work. It was really only later uh, when I did my PhD at Columbia that I worked with a historian, uh, Marsha Wright, who then made me properly begin to engage with and think about uh, the James Stewart archive. And when I came back to South Africa uh, to do fieldwork for my PhD, that was in 2009. In fact, that's where John and I first met. Uh, John, uh, you probably don't remember that. Um, I got the job I had in Cape Town, first job in Cape Town, while we were driving through um, uh, the border, uh, at the border between Bumalang and uh, and Wazunatal, with a bunch of farmers who were showing us some of the the historical places where some of the wars uh, in the early 19th century may have taken place. Um, And then sort of later on moved to Cape Town and joined the APC, where I got working with John more fully. Um, And again, as as, uh, both John and Cynthia have explained, um, the APC uh, is where our collaboration really began and where I got to meet uh, uh, Cynthia as well. So yeah, um, that's been the journey. Uh, the journey, my journey, has been uh, particularly with the James Stewart Archive, which um, I've, I've worked with ever since um, um, I got to know it as a, a student in Durban. Oh, that's fantastic! Thank you. So, turning to archives of times past, uh, this book is organized in six sections and. The four chapters of part one, First Thoughts About the Archive, are all co-authored by the group of you. I felt that they put forward a lot of the main goals that you had for this book. Could you share a few of the goals that you lay out for yourselves in that section? Well, as John has said, his initial idea was to do a book that confronted the standard stereotypes that one finds, especially in pre-colonial history. And perhaps we'll have to explain why I'm putting quotation marks around pre-colonial. Um, you know, so for example, Shaka as the savage king who devastated the whole of Southern Africa, conveniently emptying the land for white people to come along and settle in it. Um, but those kinds of particularly racial stereotypes, um, you know, around the Bushmen and with, phys- with an emphasis on physical attributes of people and so on. And so John was quite keen to do something which would challenge these stereotypes. By then, I'd been teaching for quite a long time at school and also at university where I did a lot of teacher education. And to be honest, I just felt quite cynical about how effective a book like that would be because I felt that I'd been doing a lot of that my whole life. And to me, it didn't seem that it had very much impact. So we began talking and thinking about it. And one of the things that struck me is I was at university myself as an undergraduate in a very exciting cutting-edge time of history when people were writing a lot about times past and involved in theory about how to conceptualize societies of that era and so on and to show how they changed and so on and yet and that was in the 70s and yet by the 2000s there was so little of that that it made its way into school but also university curricula so that was how I started to think about why that was and how we might change that situation. So then I began to be very interested in the idea of doing a book that would 
assist teachers and students to think about uh, pre-colonial history and to have ways of finding out about it. So that was my angle. Thank you. I don't know if um, John and Mbongasini, you wanted to add anything to that. Yeah, just to be add to that. Yeah, what Cynthia is saying is that we were moving, in fact, from the question of what happened in the past and how to get it right, moving away from that kind of notion, that language, to, well, how do we know about the, the past before colonialism in the first place? It seems you know, a much bigger question. Um, it was a question designed to vex students in many ways, because what students want to be told is what happened in the past. And more and more, we are moving away from trying to answer that question. You know, towards a sort of answer, well, you know, we're just historians. We don't know what happened in the past. What we can do is point you to the sources on the past. Now go and look at them. And also, you know, moving against this sort of common notion, look at them and make up your own minds. No, we don't want you to make up your own minds. Just keep reading and thinking, reading and thinking. It's a point that we emphasize in the book. You know, it's an ongoing process, never-ending process, this thinking about the archive. Um, and then accompanying that, I think this was Cynthia's influence coming through, and also the APC. Moving from the notion of just a concern with particular sources, like the ones that we cover in section two of the book, to the broader question of the, the actual explorers themselves, the, the, the researchers, and their human adventures along the way of getting into the archive. It wasn't just a matter of taking the archive for granted, it was investigating how the archive was made, but also how researchers responded to it. Because that shapes very much what they take away from the archive and the way that they write history, you know, their own backgrounds, where they're coming from, what's shaped their own ideas as researchers. And that's what we're moving towards you know, in this book, encouraging people to write about their own experiences as explorers. So I would add to that, I think that, um, I think, um, I mean, my own interest in part was in my PhD, I was looking at uh, a group of people that were reconstructing identities um, and identities that had been erased over 200 years or suppressed at least. And what, what became very interesting to me, um, someone trying to study the, the, the sources, again, that people were using was the question of, yeah, what were people using uh, to try and reconstruct these identities? And where were they finding the praise poetry that they were trying to reconstruct? And um, that led yeah, to a string of sources over 150 years that people were turning to. And um, it became quite interesting to me to look at what those sources were and look at the circumstances under which those sources themselves had come into being 
um, and look at the ways in which in the present, uh, for purposes of, um, the, of, of present projects, people were drawing on those past sources. And that those are the kind of uh, um, questions I was interested in that led to these explore, explorations um, and to the kind of conversations that um, we, have, we have had over many years at the APC. Fantastic. Um, well, John, you already mentioned the second part of the book a little bit. Maybe we can move into that. Parts two through six of the book feature contributions by other authors, and particularly in part two, commentaries and conversations. These dive into analysis of a variety of primary and secondary sources commonly used to think about South African history. Uh, and you wrote earlier in the book that the question of how to engage critically with source material influenced by colonial ways of thinking is really at the heart of this, as you just said. So could you share a few examples of p- how part two can prompt us to reimagine, re-examine our engagement with source material and with the archive? Who is that directed to? Any of you, whoever would like to share. Yeah. Would you like to go? Cynthia? I think that um, you or Bokaseni should start us off, and then I'll come in if necessary. Okay. Well, let me pick up with Chapter 9, then. It's one that I've written, Unpacking Olden Times. I think it's a fairly typical example of what we were doing in that second section. You know, Olden Times in Zululand and Natal was written by a missionary historian, Alfred Bryant, and published in 1929, after he'd been doing 40 years of research in what he called Zulu history. It was 700 pages of really tight-packed, one could, no, it's not analysis, tight-packed synthesis of as much as he could find on the oral accounts of dozens and dozens of the little groups and the big groups that lived in Bazuna Natal before colonialism. And so after 1929, it became a standard work. It was just easy for people, both white scholars and later on black scholars, simply to pick it up, open it, and largely read it off the page as not necessarily the truth, but as the most conveniently available account. And in that way, it became entrenched right through the study of the Natal region, the Wazulu Natal region before colonial times. And it remained the, the, the primary source, the primary secondary source, you can put it that way, the main secondary source, right up until the 1970s when the first volumes of the James Stewart archive that we've spoken about already started appearing and providing the basis for challenging a lot of what Bryant had written. If students, readers, writers, academics were prepared to do the research necessary in the Stewart archive, which is it's a difficult thing to use, much more difficult than Bryant. But Bryant still today I mean, for 40, 50 years on, it still remains an indispensable source. Not so much as a 
incorrect or right account in its own right, but as a source material. It's an archival work now with lots of little bits and pieces that can be teased out of it with careful, critical thinking. And the chapter I wrote was really about Bryant and how he put that work together and the its strengths, how it came to be published, its strengths, its weaknesses, and why there's a great need to be careful with it in using it. And the same sort of points apply to the other works in that section. Makema Fuse, Abantu Abamnyama, the basic source, source book, synthesis book in Sizuru, published in 1922. Rachel King, an archive in an old tin trunk. That chapter is essentially about David Frédéric Berger, who was one of the French-Swiss missionaries in Lesotho in the late 1900s, and in 1912 published the history of the Basutu, which today, more than a century later, is still a standard work that people just you know, largely dip into without you know, much by way of critical analysis. Unlike Bryant, Bryant has been overtaken by Stuart. These other works, in many cases, have not been overtaken in a similar kind of way. You know, so they're still used too uncritically in our views. And then there was Making Tribal Histories, the work of Paul Leonard Breutz, a controversial character who came out to South Africa from Germany after the Second World War and became a major ethnographer and historian of Tswana-speaking peoples. Again, his works are very largely used uncritically because there's nothing else in many cases. And then yeah, chapter 8 took a slightly different turn. Here we approached Sikiba, Sikiba Kira Dukwati to write on his own researches into Nicholas von Varmelo, who'd been a major ethnography, ethnographer in South Africa from the 1920s right through to the 1960s. And he's written again a number of works which are simply standard works today and largely used uncritically. In the end, Sikiba wasn't able to find the time to actually get down to writing, so we ended up having a couple of very interesting conversations with him, Cynthia and I did, and it's those that we put into the book. So it's that kind of work that Section 2 of Archives of Time Past tries to do. Look critically at what remain standard sources in you know, a century on. Great, thank you. And then looking at part three, Bongasini, I think this is something that you spoke to a little earlier as well. Um, this section is called Becoming Explorers, and it engages with contributors who are reflecting on their initial engagement with archives and their personal process and learning. Could you share more about some of the material covered in part three? I mean, I think the the, the key thing um, for us is again this question of what journeys um, have different contributors had um, as scholars uh, with uh, these particular archives that they work on. Um, partly, uh, I mean, I think as uh, has been said, 
as a way of demonstrating that archives themselves are not static, um, right? Demonstrating that any archive that one engages with um, was made in a particular moment by a particular set of people under particular circumstances in order to be able to to work fruitfully with an archive. Uh, one, one can't simply go and uh, uh, extract nuggets of fact, um, as John, I think, has, has talked about. But one also needs to go further to think about the circumstances under which uh, that, that archive came into existence. And so the explorers that we um, um, have, in, uh, the, the contributors, um, that became explorers in, in part three. Um, these different authors, Mucha Parara Musenwa, Lisa Krill, Luguyak John himself, of course, on the James Stewart archive, and how they themselves have come to work or have worked with these archives uh, over their careers. So that's chapters 10 to 13 uh, in part three. So they, they explore um, how their own careers have unfolded and how archives have come um, um, to define their careers or engagement with particular archives, um, their own changing ideas about those particular archives at different times. Um, so Chang Semwa, for example, uh, his chapter deals with um, how he became an environmental historian um, thinking about the way in which um, studying nature is something that was in some ways not part of um, the, the, the world in which he grew up. And he had to journey into uh, thinking about nature as an archive uh, of sorts. Um, so I think the, 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 yeah, the, I think uh, um, that's what we were trying to get at here, that um, the, the, the person working with uh, a particular archive also comes at it from um, a very particular location themselves, and those the journey with the archives itself, with an archive itself, I think becomes uh, um, uh, something that um, both makes the person in certain ways, but also the archive itself in those journeys is something that comes to take on particular meanings uh, for the person. I'm going to ask John to talk about his own contribution to that section on the James Stewart Archive. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I've already said quite a lot, so I'll keep it short. Um, yeah, that chapter of mine just simply describes how I became involved in working on the James Stewart Archive from 1971 onwards. And it's more than 50 years ago. Wow. And it's still ongoing, actually. Work that Mongoseni and I are doing. Or, yeah, in between times. Um, look, James Stewart was a, <coughs> excuse me, a magistrate and colonial official in colonial Natal. 
in the 1890s into the early 20th century. And from about 1897 to 1922, he spent much of his spare time in deliberately approaching knowledgeable Africans about the past before colonial times. Well, and during colonial times, actually, as well. I mustn't get that wrong. And discussing their knowledge of the past in great detail, and then making notes of what they told him. Sometimes verbatim, but more often a paraphrasing of what they were telling him, because he couldn't write down everything. And those notes he managed to keep safe you know, for the rest of his life in the tower, and for the rest of his life in London. He moved to London in 1922. And they survived the Blitz in southeast London in the 1940s after his death, they were being cared for by his widow. And there's another whole story about the actual notes themselves that needs to be told. The making of the collection, the James Stewart collection, and its fate over time. And how eventually his widow sold the collection back to Kitty Campbell, who was a noted collector in Durban in the late 1940s. And so they came back, actually, to South Africa, where they belonged in the first place. But you know, there are all sorts of little slips and slides along the way. Where, you know, the collection might never have come into existence. It might have been lost. It might have been bombed. It might have been bought by some rich Americans. It ended up there, in the northwestern Michigan, somewhere like that. But fortunately, it's in Durban and is slowly becoming a standard source, but the most important source on the history of the Guazulu-Natal region before colonial period. It's, you know, it's a must, it just cannot be missed. Again, I should say it's a difficult source to use. It's not a narrative history, it's not even a synthesis, it's simply Stuart's notes of what interested his discussants to talk about, what interested him to talk about at any particular time. And so they're disjointed, they move backwards and forwards, they jump from one subject to another, largely in English, but often also in Isizulu. And we translated those in editing the James Stewart archive. And the more I personally research with the James Stewart Archive, the published archive, the more I wish, you know, the more I need to consult the originals. Fortunately, I have my own set of photocopies of the originals, the ones that I worked with. But I'm in a very fortunate position that way among researchers. Most of them don't. But it's absolutely essential to go back to the originals if one's doing serious research in that period. James Stewart Archive is a very important first pass, as it were, and second pass and third pass into the James Stewart collection in Kitty Campbell. But in the end, the final pass is made in Kitty Campbell Library itself with the originals. Yeah. Carolyn Hamilton and I have written together on this subject, and we can't stress too strongly that the James Stewart Archive published is not the same thing as the James Stewart collection. 
even if it's based on that connection. So just a warning to listeners. Yeah, well, those personal experiences with the archive are, um, I mean, as you said, Mongasini, never static, uh, always different, always changing, and those opportunities to be with the archive itself are so, so valuable. Um, I was really intrigued by the fourth part of the book because you bring us to archives that aren't what we might think of as a traditional archive rock art and archaeology rather than file boxes and documents. Throughout the book, I felt that you were really prompting the reader to be open to various forms of archives, language, water, rocks. Could one of you share more about the contributions in part four and what led you to include those types of archives in the book? Cynthia, I think you can talk broadly first. Perhaps I can follow after that. Well, I could probably speak for John and me at least, not, not from Bongasini because he comes from a slightly different disciplinary angle, as he was explaining. But John and I are very used to being conventional historians and very text-bound. So for us, visual stuff is quite challenging. We had to t- be taught in a way to look and to think not to think of visual material as other than illustration, you know, just a pretty picture of, of rock art or something. But well, I think John had a better introduction to that than I did. But um, so but it was so exhilarating to learn to engage with these and to engage with the really interesting debates that exist in, around rock art in South Africa. Um, and so uh, that's why we decided we had to include that. And we had a lot of debates about, does that mean that anything's an archive? You know, because Bungaseni mentioned thinking about the environment in terms of archive, which is what Mucha Masemwa does in his chapter in the preceding section. He talks about becoming an environmental historian and the environment becomes his archive. But then does that mean that you could just say that anything was an archive? And we had these long, really amazing debates and kind of tearing out our hair. Um, But yes, that was very exciting. And we have a lot of really cutting edge research to work off in South Africa. So that's what I would say in the way of a general introduction. John or Mongasini, do you want to add to that? So I think archaeology side, um, if you're working in the past before colonial times, in Southern Africa. The work of archaeologists is just unavoidable. The archaeologists, archaeology as a discipline has been going you know, nearly as long as history has in South Africa since the early 20th century. But they've very largely followed quite separate trails. There was a brief moment in the 1970s when they started coming together. They've largely separated again. Um, and of course, I probably hardly need to say that archaeology is a very um, esoteric subject from the out for the outsider. Processes of excavation, thinking, curating, and it's got its own disciplinary rules. But for the historian working on the past before colonialism in Southern Africa, there's no option, if you're a serious scholar, but to learn those rules. And to some extent, to get into what archaeologists do and understand what they do. 
how they make evidence, what they call evidence, what their archive is. In other words, material objects that are buried in the ground, which they excavate, and then really turn into an archive by curating, sorting, labeling, and giving meaning to, and putting into boxes, which they then label, curate, etc., etc. That whole process of labeling and curating, as we've tried to emphasize in that photo essay in the book, is absolutely essential again to the way of organizing knowledge. So one has to learn how to do that, to take archaeology as a discipline you know, very seriously, as well as working with um, conventional written documents. And we chose you know, three scholars there whom we knew and whom we could rely on to tell a good story, which I think they've all three of them done. You know, Amanda Essays and Jeff Mandel. Justine Vinches. There are many, many other stories that could be told about archaeology by many other archaeologists. But archaeology in South Africa still has a tradition of being done by old white men with beards and in khaki. And these three just very much stand outside that tradition and broken away from it. So that's largely why we chose them. Yeah, and then as far as material objects are concerned, again, we need to think of what archaeologists find as material objects. They put them into museums. These are paralleled by ethnographic objects in museums. And again, the whole story of ethnography in South Africa is one that needs to be talked and told critically. But in my own case, I wasn't interested in objects, material objects. You know, what were these things lying around the museums? They meant nothing. And it really took me being taken in hand by numbers of colleagues in the APC, at the University of Cape Town, you know, quite late in my career, who started educating me into the importance of material objects as archival objects. In other words, showing me that they had a history. And Justine Vinches particularly was important here because she's made a career of writing biographies of material objects, like she does in this book, where she writes the biography of a particular rock painting and how she traces its story through visiting numbers of archives in South Africa and in Germany. So it's that sort of work that started appealing to me and I began to start understanding a little bit more about how material objects could have historical value in their own right. Fantastic, thank you. Mbongasini, did you want to add to to that discussion of part four? I was just going to, I think, mention briefly that, um, I mean, actually it's occurred to me now in this conversation that my own interest has been also in the oral Right, which one cannot capture uh, in a book like this. I mean, there's some in the next section that we'll talk about. There's um, some element of that in Grant McNulty's um, contribution. But um, what's also been fascinating to me over time is to work with material that was recorded in writing in the 19th century, and how, in some instances, that gets reoralized 
right? Um, when it gets taken up by people in the present, which is really the subject, I suppose, of the next section. Yeah, uh, thank you. Well, then maybe we can uh, move to talking about part five, which is called Conflicting Opinions. And there are three contributions here by scholars and teachers who are interested in complicating popular historical narratives. Mangasini, do you want to start by sharing some of the arguments that those contributors are making? So, in part five, of course, I mean, our contributions by Himal Ramji, and Grant McNulty. And I'm going to focus on Grant McNulty's um, very interesting contribution there. So, I mentioned earlier that there's also a, a time in South Africa when histories before colonialism become quite interesting publicly and people become quite interested in rediscovering their histories and remaking their identities. So one of the things that we did alongside, I think, the uh, APC that we've talked about was we, there was also another project um, that was looking at the ways in which um, archival materials were being taken up and used by people in the present, in the post, in post-apartheid South Africa. Um, and what was happening there is it was around some of the sort of restorative justice uh, interventions of the post-apartheid government um, around land reform, for example, and around uh, chieftaincy claims, going back to try and um, undo and redo uh, some of what had been done uh, to political systems in the region by colonial rule. Uh, so the chieftaincy disputes and claims uh, where there was a commission that was going back to try and uh, establish who was a legitimate uh, chief in the present. So people turned to archives, and archives became got, got quite a, a, a quite big purchase in in public discourse um, in the in the two thousands. In fact, right up to until the present, where some of these um, claims and disputes are still ongoing. Um, and so McNulty traces um, one of the, the these groupings that um, the historians of which themselves. Um, 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 I mean, come up with very conflicting histories of the same group, partly because um, the archival materials to which they turn and the sources that they use are very different, um, right? made at different times by different people who themselves were telling the histories of different groups that were in different places geographically at different times. Um, that, that's um, what that particular chapter deals with, and it shows how how present, right, some of the, the, the archival materials become at particular moments because of uh, particular political uh, pressures, because of particular uh, discourses that become popular in the present. So people start reaching uh, um, for archival materials and often, again, reading them very uncritically. And what we're trying to show here, what the authors are trying to show in this section, is that those, I mean, certain archives, um, when they get taken up, or in case of, um, um, I mean, the, the contribution by Svisondlovu, uh, how some archives remain neglected. Um, uh, but when they do become, or do uh, gain public attention, they can be taken up in such vastly different ways uh, and be used to tell such vastly different and conflicting stories, or how people use 
different archives to tell different stories and while claiming to be talking about the same thing. Um, that, that's what we've seen, I think, in the present when people begin to reach back uh, for material that's sitting in, in archives and for, I mean, when, when they reach back into different archives that were made at different times. Thank you. Then moving on to the final section of the book, um, this describes more and illustrates the way that archive is understood. And there's a really terrific photo essay that, that shows that diversity. But I'm interested in how this concluding section brings us back to a question that you asked really early on. Where are the deep conversations about the past? Um, so, Cynthia, maybe I'll start by posing this question to you, and then um, others can add on to it. Well, you speak really clearly about the situation of South Africa. How do you think or hope that non-South African readers might apply the questions you ask to their contexts? What are the lessons about master narratives, historical stereotypes, and archival forms that you hope all readers might apply to their use of archives and their study of history? Wow, that's a really challenging question, of course. Um, I'll attempt a bit of an answer. I mean, for me, one of the great things about um, doing this book and working with the contributors and John Borgeseni is learning to do uh, what uh, Anne-Laura Stoller has called reading with the grain as well as reading against the grain. And so John's talked quite a lot about the James Stewart archive, but we also have the archive that Lisa Creel describes, for example, and Carl Hoffman and his interlocutors, or Sakiba and von Barmelo's interlocutors. And so I began to get a really exciting sense of how uh, these interlocutors can speak to us. And I think Morgasini's indicated that people used to be very skeptical of this being possible and say, well, it's just colonial, it's all mediated by colonial agents and so on. But um, I began to get a sense of how you could actually hear these people. So James Stewart, because he was so conscientious, is the best example of that. But, you know, I began to ask questions like, but who were these old men? One of them was 89 years old, and he made this incredibly arduous journey to come and speak to James Stewart. So instead of asking what was James Stewart doing? Why was he wanting to speak to old people about Zulu so-called history? I began to think about, but why did these old people come to talk to him? And um, what were they actually trying to tell him? And why did they think it was so important? And I think those uh, ideas are probably generalizable. I mean, we could only deal with a small section of South African history, actually. And so all the time we were conscious that we wanted to uh, suggest certain principles or ideas that could be applied elsewhere, elsewhere in the country as well as more broadly. Yeah. John, was there anything else that you wanted to share about this project before we wrap up? Um, really just to say, uh, repeat, I suppose, what we've really been talking about this last hour. Um, yeah, what we're trying to do in the book is show the various kinds of archive that we deal with. And again, it's only a small small section of archive that we deal with in any detail. But to show it as not inert, it's not just out there to go and be paged through or looked at and then written about. It's a, archive is a living entity. It's rethought, recatalogued, reworked, relabeled, given new meanings all the time. 
And so the business of it's asking the question, how is the arch how was the archive made in the first place? It's fundamentally important. How did it come into existence? And how did some things not come into existence? Equally important if you get it that way. How was the archive made? Why is it being remade? You won't understand it unless you delve deeply into those sort of questions. Get, get an idea of where it's coming from and who's saying what and why. And how a particular object came to be made, shaped and why. And then in parallel with that, and perhaps we could have said more about this, is the problems involved in doing this. Um, you know, it's not just a matter of reading off the page. It's a matter of getting behind the written page of the dealing with, say, with documents, written documents, and asking these critical questions about where the archive comes from, but also engaging with the concepts which give it shape and which give your own your own reading of it shape. So it's yeah. Archive is always problematic to use, and one has to bear those, keep those problems in front all the time in working with the archive. What are the problems of dealing with the source? You can't just take it for granted. Now, let me stop there. Thank you. Bongasini, I will give you the last word here. Is there anything else that you would like to share or other questions that you want uh, folks to be thinking about related to this work? So maybe end with end with two things I want to say. So I think the first thing I want to talk about is, I mean, John and Cynthia um, have indicated how most of the archives we're talking about were made um, in circumstances of colonial domination. And one of the difficulties, um, particularly, um, I mean, the reference Cynthia made uh, to Sviso and Glovo's work, is also that in engaging uh, archives, one is also sometimes looking for one's own story in the archive. You're looking to find your own history in the archive. And the difficulty um, with engaging with um, uh, archives made in colonial uh, uh, context is precisely what Cynthia was referring to, right? Um, that that you, sometimes you find that they paint your own people in such negative light. And you've got to work through the difficulty, right? To be, to be able to engage the archive, you've got to work through the difficulty um, of, of the way in which people you identified with, I identify with are represented in the archive. But you've also then got to get beyond that. And that's partly the work that um, engaging with past uh, before colonialism um, uh, uh, is, is about. It, it's partly the work that it asks of us who engage with the archive to do. Um, but the, the last thing I also I want to say is this was also, I think, a very, a very difficult book. And John and Cynthia could talk um, more eloquently about that to make because most of the contributors to the book do not think about the archives they work with in the way that we, they were asked to do for the book. So, so the, the, the authors themselves were being asked to take a step back from the work, the run-of-the-mill work that they've done 
where they are just going in and out of archives, they're reading things back and forth to actually reflect on their journeys with these uh, particular materials, with these particular archives. And, and that made this book, you know, the process of the making of this book itself, um, a process of deep reflection, a process of engaging with um, the, the author's own ways uh, from a bit of a distance, uh, own ways of working with these archives. And so I think uh, John and Cynthia would agree that uh, from when you conceptualized the book to when we actually got the book published, it took many, many years. Because many people just do not think about the materials they work with in the ways that um, we've asked authors to do for this book. Fantastic. I hope that process of reflection that you engaged folks with um, for writing this book is inspiring to, to other um, people working on other projects. Um, well, Cynthia, John, and Bongasani, thank you so much for your time today. And once again, my guests today are the editors of Archives of Times Past, published by Wits University Press. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you are listening to the Scholarly Communications Channel of the New Books Network.